0: Gracious Heavenly Father, how wonderful it is to know that you've made adequate provision for us. Adequate provision not only for our daily needs and not only for the future, but most of all and in particular you have made available to us salvation that is wrought in the person of your Son who died for our sins. Thank you for what you've been able to accomplish as we wrestle with what that means in terms of our lives. We pray that you will help us to have the teaching ministry, the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, breaking through the barriers and the prejudices and the problems that would hinder us from knowing truth, and grasp and absorb and allow. To become transferable in our lives those things which your word most surely teaches thank you for the privilege of joining in you thank you for these that have taken time from a busy schedule so that they might know you better in this way for the others in the other classes for the ministry going on with the young people with the boys and girls and in the ministry of music we pray in all of this that Jesus Christ will be exalted and glorified. Thank you for this opportunity, then, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, God did some wonderful things for us at the point of salvation, things that are done by grace. They're not grounded on any merit of ours, but entirely because God made a determination and accomplished a plan whereby uh, there could be a radical and dramatic change take place in the life of a believer. It's a duty of of the believer, and I believe the duty of believers in dealing with new believers, to bring to their attention some of these wonderful things that took place so that they can begin to apprehend just how great God's grace was in reference to us. And so... Theologians have wrestled through the years uh, with between 33 and 36 things that happened the instant that you were saved. Uh, they were things that happened uh, simultaneously, instantaneously, and they were grounded not in anything that we would do, but grounded entirely on the merit of Jesus Christ and therefore eternal in nature. And the first of those is that we are brought into the plan of God. The plan of God centers in a person. It centers in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, from the moment that a person accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior, he is spoken of in Scripture as being in Christ. And he's spoken of in Scripture as being a part of that eternal plan that God that God had before the foundation of the earth. And therefore, it's the first of these wonderful things that God has done for us. Several things are involved. For knowledge, God knows the future, as well as knowing eternity future in eternity past. There's absolutely nothing he doesn't know. Uh, We can't always understand how that works out in a practical framework. Uh, People will tend sometimes to become fatalists. Well, God knows what's going to happen anyway, so nothing can change. Therefore, um, whatever will be, will be. And that's not the attitude of Scripture at all. Uh, Because God, as the eternal God, knows everything, it does not in any way absolve us of the responsibility of making right choices. And the absolve us of the responsibility of living by faith and trusting God uh, day by day, and especially for our salvation. It also involves election. literally means to pick out from. We looked at a, at a host of verses last time in regard to this question of our union with Christ, what it is to be in Christ. And we we pointed out that Scripture says that we have righteousness because we are in Him, and He has righteousness. We don't have any righteousness of our own. That's as filthy rags. But we do have righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness because we are in Christ. When God sees us, He sees Christ. And therefore, we stand as those robed in that uh, cloak of righteousness. We have a priesthood because He's a priest, and we're in Him. We have... uh, uh, share in his rulership, in his heirship, in his sanctification, in his destiny, in all of these things, we have a share. And in the same way, we are spoken of as being as being elected in Christ. Christ is the elect one. He is stated to be such in Isaiah 42 and verse one. He is the elect one. He is the chosen one of God, in a way that is yet. Uh, difficult to explain or to understand. When we came into union with Jesus Christ, we share His election and are said to be in the plan of God. Thirdly, it involves predestination. The word predestination means is in the Greek is pro horizo. Now horizo is the horizon. All right, horizo uh, has to do with with marking out, the, the horizon marks out uh, the limit of our sight uh, as we, we look on a clear day across uh, the Pacific, uh, we, we see the horizon. sun goes down and it delineates it even more uh, because it in a sense, with that kind of light behind it, it's marked and you can see the limit. Of, of, of human sight as far as uh, the horizon is concerned. That's the word horizon. It means to mark out. And the marking out uh, is not the marking out of the earth but rather the marking out of the eternal plan of God. And pro means before. So it's something he marked out before. It's a plan that God had. And we are a part of that plan. Uh, again, as we saw last week in a passage in Ephesians 1 and both verse 5 and verse 11. Christ had a destiny. Before the foundation of the earth, Christ had a destiny. God knew where he was going, what he would do. He knew that he would die on the cross. And it was a part of a plan. It's what we call the Council of Eternal Decrees. Eternal decrees. I was out of breath when I said it, and it came out degrees rather than decrees. But the uh, it, it, it's as though uh, in eternity past, if we can use a language of accommodation here and uh, uh, speaking of, uh, of God in human terms, um, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit sat down around a conference table and uh, they said, oh, how are we going to do this? Here's what's involved. And they laid the plan out. And uh, that marvelous plan that God laid out beforehand, was, was wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, if I can carry that illustration a little further, and I have no intention in any way of seeming irreverent in this. Uh, but uh, uh, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy, God the Holy Spirit sitting around the table, God says, well, somebody's got to become a man. And if he becomes a man, I want you to understand, he's, he's going to have to die. And uh, are there any volunteers? And Jesus says, yeah, right here. <laughs> I'm ready. I'll go. I'll do it. I'll take care of that. I'm the logical choice. And, uh, and, and so all of this was planned before the creation of man, before the foundation of the earth. God laid it out uh, somehow In eternity past. And since eternity past is limitless, there's no way we can even think in terms of it being a point in time in eternity past because there wasn't time uh, previous and uh, nor likely will there be time in the future. In any event, the the fact is that Jesus Christ has a destiny. And and if you please, uh, anybody that does any planning, Uh, knows and understands that that there has to sort of be the heart of the plan. There has to be a focal point. Uh, When they built the Alaska Pipeline, uh, uh, one of the fellows who was involved in the planning of that, some of you know him, Jim Halcom, uh, he went up there, and he's an expert on this uh, procedure and review technique, procedure evaluation review technique. He used to be here at Valley Church. And uh, he went up there, and uh, they had a war room, and, uh, and, and, and they took uh, a, a particular project that was in shambles when he came in and they put it on schedule and finished the pipeline. Uh, it's been estimated that if they hadn't, he and his people hadn't come in there, uh, that it, it's, they'd still be trying to build it. Uh, but he brought, he brought it to a focal point. And he said, all right, what are we we trying to do here? Well, it's a very simple thing, basically, we're trying to do. Here's point A, and here's point B. We're trying to build this pipeline from A to B. He said, all right, that's good. That's the starting point. That's the focal point. That's what we want. When we're done, that will be done. And then they started taking all of the pieces. And believe me, it was very, very complicated. I saw a picture of of a huge wall in this war room uh, where they had a perch chart that was just unbelievable. Everybody had their job. They had their schedules. Everything had to be done. Everything was laid out there. But they started with a focal point. What do we want to do? Well, what's the focal point? Jesus Christ is the focal point. He is going to be the redeemer of lost mankind. Man isn't the focal point. Man is... Uh, the, the, the reason that Christ had to come, that is, fallen man, was the reason why Christ had to come. But that wasn't the point. The point was far greater than that. How, in the midst of man's failure and sin, can God be, be glorified? He can be glorified by providing a redemption plan. And so, therefore, Jesus Christ was the focal point of that plan. And the point that we're trying to make here is that when you accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you came into that plan and became a part of His destiny. The destiny was not merely His death. And you should understand that even though the death was one of the major projects involved, it was not the whole project. The whole project sweeps from eternity past into eternity future, where he reigns as king of kings and and lord of lords forever and ever and ever and ever. Where man who was a worshiper is taken from the Garden of Eden, if we pull it into the time frame, and ultimately restored to fellowship so that in the the eternity future he will live forever worshipping God, bringing glory to God. Even though he had gone down so far, yet God wonderfully restored him and brought him through. So you see, this is the sweep of the plan, and it all is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ wasn't finished after the cross, nor was he finished after the resurrection, nor was he finished after the ascension, nor when he returns to this earth is he finished. His work of redemption was finished. But as far as his as far as he uh, he is concerned, he has the power of an endless life. We are forever joined to him. He will be the, the bridegroom, we will be the bride, and that's that's forever. And so it's all in all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And being in Christ, we share his destiny. And it's for that reason now this is to me the most exciting part because it's probably the most practical part. It is for that reason that Romans 8.28 is operative. Look at Romans 8. You know it, but I'm going to show you something here, so you better have it, have your thumb in it. Verse 28. And we know. We may not know, verse 26, how we ought to pray. But we do know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God somehow, through a miracle, is able to take everything that happens in the life of the person who is in the plan of God, everything in his life, and cause that ultimately to be a part of the fulfillment of that ultimate goal of the glory of God. Now, that's why it says, the word of proof of this, and the, the little uh, preposition here, peri, is, is given right away after it says that. It says, let me prove it to you. Whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to become, and I might say to ultimately become, conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, beginning to see the picture. The reason all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to His purpose, is simply because God, on one hand, is able to, with the person in the plan of God, able to bring about result from even bad things that ultimately are going to issue in the glorification of God. But not only on that side where God will be glorified, but there's something else. God wants us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Everything that takes place in your life, no matter how bad it may seem to you, everything that takes place in the Christian's life has a twofold purpose Godward and youward. Godward that He might be glorified. So Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Why? So that God might be glorified. But how about Paul? Well, because he was more effective for God and accomplishing the goals and being made more like Christ and more, in his case in particular, more humble and uh, more effective because of that problem than he ever could have been without it. So on the Godward side, it's to the glory of God. On the manward side, it's because he is using every circumstance to make you more like Jesus Christ. Now, we, we don't see life like that. It's awfully hard for us to to think in terms of the daily humdrum routine and the things especially that we don't like that happen this very day and say, you know, God is using this to make me more like Jesus Christ. That bad phone call you got or that bad uh, experience that you had with a neighbor or the, the, the ticket you got, or the, the car that you wrecked, or, uh, you know, I, I don't know what happened to you today, I haven't had a chance to talk to you. But uh, things happen, some of which you didn't understand, but you may not understand that, nor did God ever say you had to understand that. But you count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. You, you live above the, the, the world, why? Because he is taking those circumstances... And in a way that you never could understand, even like the disciples didn't understand the death of Jesus Christ, that had to be one of the worst experiences of their day, I'll tell you that. Right now, they didn't understand it, but it issued what? In, first of all, glorifying God. And then as well, as far as they were concerned, it gave them the opportunity to be brought into conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. So that Paul later on could say that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made what? Conformable unto his death. He He didn't want anybody to nail him to the cross, but when he saw the issuing of good out of what happened in the death of Christ, he wanted to have a share of that in any way God wanted him to. If it meant death, well, fine. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You see? Now, the optimistic Christian is always the one who knows he's in the plan of God. He knows that God works all things together for good. He rests on the fact that God makes no mistakes. He's too wise to ever use poor judgment. He's too loving to ever do anything that really will harm us. He's too powerful to be caught off guard. There's no reason in the world to ever doubt but what God knows what He's doing. And when you sin, and He boxes you around the ears a little bit, Sure, it's corrective. Sure, it's to get you back on track. But it's also designed by God to make you more like Jesus Christ. And when you do good in it, it backfires. Again, God will be glorified in it. But at the same time, you're going to grow to be more like Jesus Christ if you respond to it. No chastening for the moment, the writer of Hebrews said. Seemeth joyous but grievous, nevertheless what? Afterward. It yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness, or right living, unto those that are exercised by it. The thing that short circuits this, and it doesn't short circuit God's plan, what it does is delay you in your misery. Uh, when, when you when, you have, when something happens to you and you chafe under it, I'll tell you something. God's not going to fail. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight, He's going to make you like Jesus Christ. He's, he's not going to fail in that. And uh, He's going to work on it until you breathe your last. And when you breathe your last, you're going to go to glory. And in an instant of time, when we see Him as He is, we're going to be made like Him. God's not going to fail. He'd like to do some of the... Uh, the rough work down here and uh, make it a little more comfortable at the judgment seat of Christ. And so he does that. But when you chafe under it, you delay. You're like the people of Israel. It came up to Kadesh Barnea. Now, do you have any doubt in your mind that the God who said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to put you in the promised land was going to get them into the promised land? There should be no doubt in your mind. we got 2020 hindsight. But there was lots of doubt in their mind. And they begin to chafe under everything that God did. God said, hey, I gave you these ten tests. And the reason I gave them is so that I'd see whether or not you'd trust me. At the end of the time, that tenth test, when they refused to go into the land when God ordered them to, God said, fine, I don't need you. I'll take the next generation. I'm going to get my people into that land. Forty years to me, big deal. So, die in the wilderness. That's fine. You know what that was? That was just marking time. Imagine living life, knowing that there'll never be any progress beyond this point. <laughs> now, that's a physical, earthly illustration, and there can be a terminus to it because 40 years was that probation period. But what God allowed was He allowed these people to walk in circles the rest of their lives. And when they stood before God, you can be sure they were held accountable for their waste of time. Why? Just simply because instead of learning and growing and moving ahead, they were content to die. And a lot of Christians like that, unfortunately, because they will not learn this lesson. They do not believe they're in the plan of God. They believe that somehow or another, God followed up on me. Things aren't going the way I want them to. Absolutely. That's a part of God's plan. God's plan is to is to rub against so much of what you think you want, just like with a child. You know, I I when I was a child, I had I had a, a, a little bit of a problem because I had a an agenda for my eating habits that didn't agree with my mother's. And the one edge that I had was she generally gave us milk money. We didn't have a cafeteria in our schools in those days. We had a little bag lunch and milk money. Now, I like milk, but I can get lots of milk at home. Milk at school? No way. Candy, that's the thing. And there was a very convenient store a few blocks from the school, and we had to walk right by it, you know. And uh, so we always walked by it and and bubble gum and all the rest of it, you know. And my mom never knew for a long time until my teeth got rotten. That's why I have teeth that's like stars that come out at night. I've had, te- I've had false teeth since I was a senior in high school because of my disobedience. Now, I'll tell you, uh, it proves that God can even use uh, a man who's speaking through false teeth. You know, I try to say true words through the false teeth. I learned a terrible lesson. Uh, there are a number of incidents that I could give you in my life that taught me the lesson that I had to learn. And a lot of it had to do with teeth and toothaches and a lot of other things. But you understand that that we may set the agenda for our life. That doesn't mean what you have planned for your life is anywhere close to what God knows is best for you. And so, therefore, we need the knocks and the difficulties and the problems of life in order to, to shape us up, in order to conform us to the image of Christ. God does some, you know, we get the idea with so many of these folks that have had moral faults. I've heard some comment on it. In this vein, they've, they've talked about the tragedy of, of this tarnishing God's uh, reputation, which is correct. There's no question. It's caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. But then they go on from there in, with this sort of regret that, that uh, maybe, if, maybe if it hadn't been such a public figure and such a public, uh, you know, it's a terrible thing that a public figure has to fall. A lot of people commit adultery, but when somebody like this commits adultery, it makes a big deal. You want to know something? God doesn't care whether he's famous or not. God doesn't care whether the whole world is watching or not. He did not hide David's sin. He made it known. He made it known. God made it known. Nobody else would have known except Bathsheba herself and David. But God made it known. Why? Because God's more concerned about conforming David into his image than he is whether or not he has a good reputation or whether or not he's influenced a lot of people. And God will 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 take Sometimes when a person is is uh, walking along and content and everything's going well, God will pull the rug out from under you and say, "God, my life was so neat, everything was going so well, and now everything's gone." You know, God's not really interested in whether your life is neat. He's really concerned as to whether it's holy. See it's hard for us to understand that. I deal with people all the time that come in and they, they think that, that they have a God-given right to be happy. It really doesn't matter how many other people they make, happy, uh, make unhappy in order to get happy. But they've got a God-given right to be happy. My happiness it, it becomes their God. And guess what? God messes up people's happiness all the time. Because you know what? He wants you to know that your happiness is not found in the circumstances of your life. That your happiness is not found in, in, in the people with whom you're associating. It's not found in all of these trivial things of life. Happiness is found in Him. Not just happiness, but true joy is found in Him. You don't need to be happy to be holy. It's nice if you can have both. (laughs) But happiness is dependent on circumstances. Holiness brings with it joy. And it's, it's interesting to me to hear the terminology David used in Psalm 51 as an example where he's praying his great penitential prayer. And he says to the Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation he wanted the restoration of the joy of his salvation he wasn't just asking for happiness in fact he already in that song makes it very very clear that he he doesn't deserve any more happiness after what he's done but he wants the joy because the joy is the is the better commodity and so what i'm what i'm saying here then is that what what the lord is talking about in predestination uh, is is not whether a person is predestined to be saved or predestined to be lost. In fact, you'll be interested to know that in regard to foreknowledge, in regard to uh, predestination, in regard to the matter of election, in regard to the matter of God's choice, uh, when we are part of the chosen, God never refers to that with a person in their unsaved state. He always is talking about believers when he talks about those things. Now, you can't deny that those things are true and there. But God doesn't talk about them. He doesn't open that chapter and let us peek in with our curiosity to see just exactly how the free will of man and the sovereignty of God balance and all of the rest. He really doesn't do that. He doesn't give way to speculation. What He does is He gives us the truth and that is, if you know Jesus Christ today, if you're brought into fellowship with Him, you are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That's what God says. And I don't, I can't deny it and I'm not going to try to explain it. But I'm saying that He never says and this guy isn't. He does say, he that has the son has life. He that has not the son of God has not life. The wrath of God is upon him. But he never says that this person was predestined to be lost. All right? Now, at the same time, then, believers, according to Scripture, are predestined, within the scope of the plan of God, they are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You as a believer have a destiny, and that destiny is to be like Jesus. So let God do his work. I think it's in the first chapter of James in the Phillips translation. It says, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends, and realize that God brought them into your life to produce the quality of patience. God wants to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. He wants to produce in your life that which is in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And the way He does it is by bringing all of these circumstances together. Now, by the same token, the Scripture also speaks of us as being chosen in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 4. And coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. First thing we see, Christ is the chosen one. As he is the elect one, he is the chosen one. He is the one that is chosen. Remember, we talked about this uh, stone that the builders reject has become the head of the corner. Jesus Christ is the head of the corner. He is the chosen one. He is the foundation stone, if you please, for the building. We are the individual stones. We are chosen in Him. If you look at Matthew 22, in verse 14. Matthew chapter 22. And verse 14, here Jesus Christ says, there are many called, but few are chosen. Not everyone is chosen. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. He is the chosen one. Not everyone is chosen, but in verse 4, It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has already blessed us with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, notice, in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Look again at that verse. He has chosen us. We are chosen how? In Him. When? Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. His choosing, again, has the same purpose as the predestination. His choosing is He chose you because He wants you to be holy and blameless before Him in love. But the sphere of our choosing is our union with Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. Finally, in the plan of God, we are called. 1 Thessalonians, many are called, few are chosen. But we are among those that indeed are called and, as we've already seen, are chosen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul is speaking here of his relationship with them as a father. And he says in verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. God called you. The call of God upon the life. And we were called into, not only in his son, but we were called into his kingdom and called into his glory. Go over 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you who also will bring it to pass. Well, what's he talking about here? Well, go back and see verse 23, what he's saying. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. That's the word for holiness. Be set apart to be different, if you please. Sanctify you, not just partially, but entirely prayer that he has is that as we are progressing in our scale of Christ-likeness, as we are progressing in becoming more and more blameless before him in love, as we are progressing in our holiness, that that might be made complete. Ultimately, it will be when we see him face to face. But he says he wants them to be completely set apart, completely different, completely linked to him in holiness. And may your spirit... And soul and body, his prayers also, that the, the tripart man will be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. God is going to accomplish that. Ultimately, we will be physically before him in a resurrection body. Our souls, our spirits, cleansed by the blood of Christ, cleansed by the, the power of God, cleansed by, by the purification that comes because we'll be, we, will, we will have a resurrection body like His because the, the blood of Christ shed on the cross of Calvary has been a totally, completely, and absolutely sufficient sacrifice so that we can be presented as, without spot and wrinkle before Him blameless. For all of eternity. He is faithful. He's gonna do it. Now I, I have to admit, you know, you I look in the mirror sometimes and I think, you know, he's it's coming slow. <laughs> you ever think that? It's coming slow. I wish I was more like Christ. There's so many times where you lack wisdom and you go to the Lord and you want so desperately to do the right thing. Yet, you're so cluttered with so many things that would tend to have you doing the wrong thing. And you blow it. You don't want to. You want to be like Christ. And you ask yourself the question, Lord, why didn't you just do it instantly? And I have a bunch of little Christs running around Valley Church. Wouldn't this be a happy place? Well, it would be. But there's something to be said about the struggle. Even Christ learned what it was to obey by the things that he suffered. Having to to face, in eternity past, Christ with the Father never had to face a question of obedience or disobedience. Never. They were so united and perfect, holy, complete. Christ, when he came physically to earth, was still perfect. He did not. allow temptation to take him. He didn't ever sin. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, totally and completely. Yet he was tested in all points like as we, yet without sin. And so before he became a man, he could never say, I obeyed you, God. But when he became a man, then he came into this new category of being able to say, God, I was obedient. And he learned what it was to obey by the things that he suffered. You do too. The problem is, we, you know, we make it 50-50, huh? Working on, working on making a 60-40. <laughs> takes longer. And we have all these foibles and faults and failures along the way. But will you try to understand this? You came into a wonderful plan. God called you into Himself. You are chosen in Him before the foundation of the, of, of the world. He predestinated you to be conformed to the image of His Son. He has elected you, picked you out from among others. And He knew it all the time. He knows what He's doing, and you're in His plan. I hear people sometimes talk about God's plan for them. And I want you to understand that I believe sincerely with all of my heart that God within the scope of that plan has a specific plan for your life that is good and acceptable and perfect. And those things differ with each individual. And I'm making an assumption tonight that in the plan that God has for you as an individual, He brought you here tonight. And that He will suit a blessing to your need because you are obedient as He's leading you along. And it's just one of those things which uh, I can never judge whether at any given moment you're being obedient or disobedient unless you're violating a clear command of Scripture. in terms of how you run your schedule and what you do with this and what you do with that I can't know that you can know I can know for myself I know whether I'm obedient or not and if I'm disobedient I'm sinning and I've got to deal with it as sin just as you do but the fact is that that God has an individual plan for your life and that is a big part of what God wants to accomplish through you All right. because it involves the people that you will meet, that you could witness to. It will involve the the uh, the kind of careers that you choose uh, that will uh, that will enable you uh, to bring glory to His name by the way you do your job and all of those things. And it's just quite simple and in plain terms. Uh, some people are are called within the scope of that plan to go to the mission field and be a missionary there, and some others are called to be missionaries right here, uh, working at an 8-to-5 job and uh, serving in the church and all of the rest of it. And it's not a matter of degrees or anything else. Each one is individually called of God to do a particular thing. But that in itself, and I want you to understand this not exaggerate what I'm saying, but grasp it if you can. That plan that God has for you as an individual is paled into insignificance compared to the plan that he has for you in Christ, that you might be made like Christ, that you might ultimately bring glory to God as one who reflects his image. That plan that God has for you is absolutely phenomenal. And we are privileged to be a part of it. Now, that then brings us to the second of these. We spent probably too long on the first one, but we had to get warmed up the first week and then uh, got about half of it last week. And uh, well, we won't spend that long on each one of these things. But the second, in addition to being in the plan of God, the scripture tells us that at the instant of salvation, at the moment you accepted Christ, you were reconciled. You were reconciled. Now, the word reconciled is the word katalaso. If you want the spelling, K-A-T-A and then two L's, A-S-S-O. Um, the, the The term simply means to exchange or to change. And uh, the way it was used in secular Greek and the way it is then enhanced in a very special way in the New Testament, is that there's a change from enmity to friendship. There's a change, if you please, from a broken relationship uh, and and in that interrupted fellowship uh, to a place where there has been restoration of that friendship, restoration of that relationship and fellowship. And so the, the word simply means, if you want to have a little way of, of trying to remember uh, the doctrine of reconciliation, you can begin by saying, here's what its meaning is. All right. The first thing is its meaning. Its meaning is simply to change from enmity to friendship. To change something from, from hostilities to, to a condition of peace. The second thing that is involved... Uh, And by the way, uh, we're talking about reconciliation uh, in relationship to God. So it's a matter of us being changed from being an enemy of God to being the friend of God and so on. I want you to look with me at Romans 5 because the second thing that you want to understand about this is the need of reconciliation. Why is it that such a legal transaction has to take place uh, that brings about this restored fellowship? Now, it's really quite an interesting uh, picture here because it says uh, in Romans 5 and between the verses 6 and verse 10, you have five very clear reasons why you need to be reconciled to God. First of all, it says, "...for a while we were still helpless." Helpless means without strength to help yourself. You were helpless. You could not, you could not in any way please God. You you are in a condition of spiritual death. You are in a condition of spiritual darkness. You are in a condition of spiritual impotence. And the, the idea that you might, you might kind of reach out to God, I think there's a song that says reach out to Jesus and he'll reach out to you. And I, Hey, uh, give him poetic license. It's a pretty song, all right? But uh, always be careful of the theology of songs. You can't reach out to Jesus. You are impotent. You're like the, you're like the lame man at the pool of Siloam. And there he, uh, and, and the Lord comes along and says, uh, uh, they, they, they had a, an idea there that uh, people could be put at the troubling of the water, that there was an angel came down and troubled the water once a year, and the first person that got in the pool after the water was being troubled would be healed. And this man had been sitting there for years, <laughs> waiting and, and the Lord comes along and says, says, hey, you're not healed, are you? And, and the guy says, oh, wait a minute, Lord, I've been here, but there's not been anybody to put me in there. I'm crippled. I can't get in there. And that's what you are before you can come to Christ. You're you're crippled by the pool, and someone else is getting ahead of you and and getting in the pool, but you can't get in the pool. Incidentally, we have no indication that anybody really got healed there it was people believed it but christ never said such a thing happened he just simply said this was the the scenario but here this man got healed not because somebody picked him up and put him in the troubled waters but because the lord touched him and healed him and the lord had to do it all because he was impotent guess what same word he was the impotent man You are impotent. You are absolutely without strength. It doesn't mean weakness. It means no strength at all. Now that's why, as we're going to see in a moment, we not only needed to be reconciled to God, but God had to effect the reconciliation. You notice that God didn't wait until the 20th century when we got spaceships going around in outer space. And God says, well, finally, man has the technology to meet me halfway. He didn't do that. In the first century, they didn't have spaceships. They couldn't even physically meet God even partway. They were earthbound. They couldn't even fly an airplane in those days. God sent Jesus Christ all the way down. He did it all there's nothing you can do for yourself. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Huh? I run to people all the time and Says that's humbling. That's the whole point. You know what? There's no pride in heaven. If you could work, let's say, 10% of salvation were you doing it. Just 10%. Give, it a, give it the benefit of the doubt. God did 90, you did 10. Guess what? God would have to throw you out of heaven. Because you'd be up there bragging about it. You'd be bragging about your 10%. By grace, unmerited favor, are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. There's no boasting for the Lord. When it comes to reconciliation or any of these things, God did it. He did it all. But that's the first reason. The first reason is because you are impotent, unable to please God. The second reason is in the same verse. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's the second reason why you needed reconciliation. Not only were you impotent, but you were ungodly as to your basic nature. Look down in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were Yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, being ungodly has to do with our basic nature. No spark of divine life, if you know what I mean. Being a sinner has to do with our state. That's the condition in which we find ourselves. We miss the mark. We cannot attain to the perfection that God demands. Verse 9. Much more then having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath, the wrath of God, through Him. So now in verse 9, we pick up the idea that we are under the wrath of God. Now I like to think of, of the wrath of God as being one of the one of the the, uh, irrevocable laws of nature. Uh, Some people raise their eyebrows at that. I want you to understand that there are times where God interposes Himself into a situation and supernaturally brings His wrath upon people. Sodom and Gomorrah is a case in point. The flood is a case in point where God wiped out huge populations Because they were sinful, and God zapped them. Alright? So I don't want you to think I don't believe that God zaps people, but I don't believe God zaps people as often as some would like to believe. Because what God does is He builds into sinful acts certain built-in consequences that are as surely His wrath as if God zapped them with fire and brimstone. Sexual sin is a case in point. Wherever throughout history there has been a predominance of sexual sin, there has been social disease that has wreaked havoc on man. And God doesn't stand up in heaven and say, I'm going to get that guy. No, he builds up, he builds into the adulterous act, and the immoral acts of men, he builds into that certain consequences, sure as the world. It's like the law of gravity. I will guarantee you, you go to the top of a ten-story building, and you jump off. You may be sorry halfway down, but I got, I got news for you. You're still going to get killed. And that ground hits you. And by the way, it's really not the fall that hurts you. No one has ever died from the fall that I know of yet. It's the sudden stop at the bottom that gets you. And that's the wrath of God. Because he said, what goes up must come down. If you step off into space, this is his law. You step off into space with nothing under you, without wings and without an umbrella or something else, you're going to fall down at a certain speed which can be calculated by the physicist. And and when you hit bottom, smash! That's the law of nature. You can't get away with sin. Be sure your sin will find you out. It's going to catch you. The soul that sinneth, it might die. Is that what Scripture says? No. The soul that sineth, it shall die. Satan uh, tried to con Adam and Eve and did a pretty good job of it. Eat of this tree and you won't die. Well, for the moment it seemed like that was true. They ate of the tree and they didn't die. But they began to die. There was a consequence in partaking of that fruit that, in, that, that brought about both physical death, which is inevitable for all men, because it's appointed unto on man once to die, and after that, the judgment, and spiritual death, which was separation from God. You just can't get away with it. And the reason we need reconciliation is because we, being sinners, are under the wrath of God. The built-in consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the spiritual death involves the wrath of God and involves the judgment of God. So we are under condemnation. Number five in verse 10. For if, the first class condition, a fulfilled condition, since, while we were enemies. There's another category. We are not only impotent, and ungodly, and a sinner, and under the condemnation of God. But guess what? We are God's enemy. We have made ourselves enemies of God because of our sin. And that has to do with the whole scheme of the restless activity that we have that is contrary to that which God has in mind for us. So the first thing is its meaning, katalaso, to change, or to change from enmity to friendship. Its need Because we're impotent, ungodly, a sinner under condemnation and enemies. And it's scope. That's the third thing. The scope of this reconciliation. I want you to see again, as I mentioned just a moment ago, but we're not going to do it tonight, (laughs) because we just ran out of time. So we are going to go and let let you run off. And we'll talk about its scope next time. Let me just finish the sentence I was going to make. You are reconciled by God and you are reconciled to God. God not only took the initiative, but He brought us not to someone else, making us be reconciled with someone else. He brought us to Himself. Reconciling us to Himself and doing all the work, doing it by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, I hope you're enjoying the things that God has done for us as much as I'm enjoying teaching them, because uh, I just love to review these things, and it's something that I think is so needed in this day and age. Uh, The more we understand of our salvation, the more effective we'll be, not only in witnessing to others, but in terms of living a Christian life in victory. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives, and especially for what you're doing right here just pray now that you would undertake to bless in a wonderful way in regard to just coming to grips and to understanding these things. Thank you for what we know you're going to accomplish, to the praise and the glory of your grace. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.